morning, everybody. I um, think the kids are just wonderful, aren't they? Let's give them a hand again. Yeah. And uh, wonderful kids come from wonderful parents, so we're thankful for them as well for you. I was listening the other day, and I heard an individual say something that caught my attention. They're not a believer. In fact, they are an agnostic leaning toward atheism. A graduate of Yale, uh, been a professor, a leader at Harvard, so a very uh, intelligent person, a highly regarded uh, legal scholar, made the comment that we're at a place in our nation now where we don't know what the truth really is anymore. Now, he was making his comments politically speaking, but as I thought about what he said, I thought, you know, that's true across the board in almost every area of life. We are a very confused nation. We're a very confused world. What is the truth? And so much of what is pandered as a truth are lies. And so what happens to the rest of us is we're trying to sort through, well, what is the truth and what exactly is a lie and how am I supposed to make sense of all these things that I'm hearing, which then just fuels the fire of this idea of relativism where you have your truth, I have my truth, and we'll leave each other alone and life will be okay, even if what I believe isn't necessarily true. Maybe it's, it's, it is a lie. Maybe it doesn't work, but it works for me, and that's, that's good enough. And when a culture buys into that kind of ideology, that kind of philosophy, the outcome is always going to lead to chaos and evil. And we, we see that in our world today. It's been throughout all of history. It's not like it's brand new today, but it seems more intense than ever before. And so that's what's leading us into this third series now since the beginning of the year called The Long Story Short. We began the year by talking about the importance of identity, finding our identity in Christ. We talked about how to deal with our desires. And now I think it's just natural that we build off that and say, okay, you know, what are we supposed to believe? What is, what is God's truth? What do we need to believe about God's truth? And uh, we're going to pursue that because there are three things I want you to gain from the series. And one of them is I want you to know what the truth is. We don't have to accept this idea that, that the truth cannot be known or there are many forms of the truth. Secondly, I want you to be able to tell the truth. And I don't necessarily mean tell the truth from a lie, though that I hope will, will happen. You'll learn to do that. But I want you to learn how to tell in narrative form what the truth is in a very conversational in a fun, if I can even put it this way, entertaining, meaning holding attention kind of way. And last but not least, I just want you to walk away going, man, when you know the truth, it brings joy, brings hope. And uh, I think that's why our world is so desperately looking for hope these days, because there isn't that sense of this is the truth, I can anchor myself to it and be relieved of a lot of other stress that I'm facing in my life. So long story short is really about learning the truth of the whole Bible. Thinking about the 66 books of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, as one whole story, one great uh, drama that's being played out. I think some of us are afraid of the Bible because it's been made to seem so complicated. It's not. Yeah, there's some things in it that are hard to understand, but the big story of the Bible is actually quite simple. I think a lot of us get caught looking at parts of the story, and when that happens, it can seem kind of confusing. So we're going to look at the long story of God's love and God's hope, and we're simply going to condense it down to a short story that's understandable and something we can share with others. And so I want to give you a resource that you can use throughout the series and beyond 
It's one of my favorite websites. I go there often. And the reason I do it fits my learning style. And I'm, I'm very, in my learning style, very kinetic. I need interaction. I need visuals, things like that. And so you've heard of it. If you haven't, check it out. It's called thebibleproject.com. We'll put it up on the screen. We'll put it on the blog. We'll put it again at the end of the service. But I appreciate Dr. Tim Mackey, who himself is a scholar and well-versed in ancient languages. And uh, he and his team have done a tremendous job making the Bible very accessible uh, at any level. And uh, I wish it had been around when I was a student because if I was a student, this would have been a game changer for me because it would have worked with my learning style. And uh, they put cool images together to help teach profound truths. And so I would encourage you to go there. And there's a section of downloads that you can do. And look at the one that says download posters, which all of you are doing now. So I hope you'll remember to stay with me during the message. And uh, you go to download posters and, and download the Old Testament poster, the Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K. We'll talk about it in just a moment. And if you go over and click on their videos, click on the Old Testament, look at the very first one. And in 10 minutes, Dr. Mackey will take you from Genesis to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. And, and he'll give you a, actually a great talk that you can learn yourself and it will just become very natural for you conversationally in your family and with your friends, which raises the question, why come here then? Well, you might as well just stay home and go to thebibleproject.com and listen to Dr. Tim Mackey while you're in your jammies eating your porridge. All right? But I don't think they make porridge anymore here, do they? All right, whatever you have for breakfast. But you got to come, okay? And the reason why is because they're going to add a lot more color to what he has done. And so you don't want to miss that part out. At least I hope you don't want to miss it out. So I'm just asking for 90 minutes from you the next three weekends. That's not a lot of time, 30 minutes each weekend. And so uh, going to that website will encapsulate a lot of what I'm saying and will help you retain it and it will be an encouragement to you as you do that. So let's get started. Let's look at that poster I was talking about. You can download this. You can print it out. I've actually got their whole book of posters. It's a lot of fun. And uh, I want us to look at a Hebrew word as we get started. And the Hebrew word is Tanakh. So let's all learn to say Hebrew. Say Tanakh with me. One, two, three. Tanakh. Very good. What does Tanakh mean? It means I hope he's done by noon. No. Tanakh means the Old Testament. It's just a Hebrew form of what we say when we say the Old Testament, the Tanakh. Now the Hebrew Old Testament is different than our Old Testament. The Hebrew Old Testament is what Jesus would have worked off. Still has the same books in it, but... It was divided up a little bit differently. It was divided up into three forms. We use one of these. One is called the Torah. Let me hear you say that. Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The next one is the Nevi'im. So let's try that one. Nevi'im. Ready? Nevi'im. Nevi Very good. All right. And uh, this contains books like Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and some of the prophets. And then you have what is called the Ketuvim. Let me hear you say that. Ketuvim. All right. It was a little bit harder. And uh, that contains the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Daniel, the Scroll of Lamentations, Ezra, uh, Song of Solomon, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. All right. We're probably only going to get as far as the Torah today. And we'll pick up the rest of it next weekend. In addition... All right, some other insights that uh, we'll pick up next weekend as well. So let's try our Hebrew one more time. How do you say this? Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, 
and Ketuvim. All right, very good. You all have passed Hebrew 101, and you are now all scholars as a result of that, okay? So you can go home and impress everybody with what you've done. We're going to look at the first portion of this, so we'll cut it out. We'll put it up there. We're going to talk about the what? Torah, all right? You're my most awake crowd. I love 11 o'clock. I love the others too, but you guys have had enough caffeine. You're ready to go, okay? And uh, I want to introduce you to uh, some principles as we go along the way. You say, man, you're talking so fast today. I got 39 books to cover in just uh, 60 minutes now and next weekend, all right? And uh, anyway, I, I want to introduce you to a principle, and it simply goes like this. The truth is, because we're talking about the truth, you cannot understand your circumstances without the knowledge of God's big story. All right? You cannot understand your own circumstances without understanding God's big story from Genesis to Revelation, a story of love and a story of hope. You see, God's big story is about you as much as it is about anybody else that you think of in the Bible. That's one of the problems we got to get past of thinking the Bible as history and old and about those people that lived back then. It incorporates you in that story, and you've got to be able to see yourself in that story if you're going to get meaning and hope from it. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. You probably have heard of the character Job in the Bible. Job starts his life out. He's wealthy. He's wise. Job is a very successful businessman. And then all of a sudden, this man of God, and he was a godly, godly man, blessed by God, one day wakes up and boom, it is all gone. Everything near and dear to him is taken away. And it's just a terrible, terrible situation. And as Dr. Uh, Joshua McNaum uh, says in his little commentary about this situation, he says, without warning, Job's universe is torn apart. It's torn apart by sickness, by death, by fair weather friends, a natural desire. And if all that isn't bad enough, a nagging wife that wants him dead. Job chapter 2, verse 9, she says to him, curse God and die. He was covered with boils. His kids have been taken from him. Why keep on living? His friends come to comfort him. And when they show up, at first they say nothing. They're just there with him in the, in the ashes as he's suffering. Wise friends, they don't say much. But then when they finally open their mouths, they say too much. And they look at Job and they say, Job, there must be sin in your life because this wouldn't be happening unless there was sin in your life. Has that thought ever crossed your mind when you've seen somebody suffering? Don't raise your hands. Because it does. It crosses our mind. That's our sinful nature. Or when something bad happens to us, we wonder, am I being punished by God? And so Job responds to that. He says to them, as he defends himself, look, I haven't done anything deserving of this. I have tried to live a righteous life and please God. And while Job never curses God, he does complain to God. Have you ever done that? And in fact, he goes beyond that. He even questions God's justice. And then finally, in about Job chapter 38, God speaks up. And as God speaks the first time, he takes Job and, in essence, interrogates him. But he gives him a ringside seat, as McNall says, or a front row seat. And he takes him all the way back to the beginning. And he shows him the creation and all that God did. Now, God never answers Job's questions. But when God is finished with Job, giving him the big picture, 
Job goes from complaining and questioning God's justice to falling on his face and worshiping God. Why? Because Job gains context to what's going on in his own personal life. And that's what I'm suggesting to you and to me. We've got to gain context. And when I gain context what's happening in my life, then life just starts to make a little bit more sense to me. Rather than seeing myself caught in the middle, it's like watching a movie. Have you ever just started watching a movie halfway through? It's terrible. I won't watch something beginning in the middle because I don't know what's going on. My wife, Marcia, hates it when she's watching a movie and I sit down, having come in an hour into the movie, and I start going, who is that? What are they doing? What happened before? Why is that going on? She gets really disgusted with me. And once I find out it's a Hallmark movie, well, I know the whole plot then. All right? But anyway, all right, sorry for you Hallmark people. I just offended you, all right? But nobody likes that. And sometimes it feels like you're in the middle of the story and you don't know what's going on. That's a horrible feeling to have. But when you get the big story, then you see where you fit. And you see kind of a sense of what God is doing. And that's so comforting. It brings us great hope as a result of that. So as we jump into the story, I want to hook on to one verse for just a moment. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Let's read it aloud together, all of us. Ready? God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It was what? Very, very good. So what we do is we learn a very important principle as we start out with. And that principle is simply this. The truth is God's story is a good story. And I think we sometimes forget that. Because what happens is we get into life circumstances and sometimes life seems bad. Life is bad in many ways. But I want you to know that in the very beginning, it wasn't like that. In the very beginning, God's story was a good story. And listen carefully. God's story still is a good story, and it's going to get gooder. I said that on purpose. All right? Get your attention. Yes, I know it's bad, and it probably is going to get worse. But I'm telling you something. It's going to be good in the end because God always intended it to be a good story. So the question becomes, what happened? Let's go back to our graphic. I want to take a little bit of time. I'm going to camp on some things and not on others. That's because there's some things we've got to understand. But let's begin by talking about the first couple of chapters of Genesis. God creates the world. He creates this paradise called Eden. And Eden, he puts this wonderful creature called Adam. And then out of his side, he puts this other beautiful creature called Eve. Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, are original parents. And it was good. It was a good story so far. Thank God for that. And God blessed them. And God said, I want you to partner with me. And I want you to take this little oasis in this wild world. And I want you to spread the oasis till it covers the entire world. And the whole world is like Eden. Read the end of the book of Revelation. It'll be like that someday. That's the good and getting better story. But God says, in the meantime, partner with me in all of this. But God said you can have fruit from all the trees in the garden, but there's this one tree, and I don't want you to eat the fruit of that. Now, some of you are thinking, Pastor, you've talked about that tree an awful lot. I've heard you do quite a few messages on Genesis chapter 1 and 2. What is it with that? Well, you cannot understand the rest of the story of the Bible if you can't figure out the first story. 
And the first story has many layers of depth to it. It is a huge, big story to ponder. And we're going to ponder some things we haven't talked about before. So hang in there with me, all right? God says, here's this tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't have the fruit of that tree. It belongs to me. It's my tree. Now, what that represents is not that the tree is somehow mystical and magical. But when God says that to them, in essence, what God is saying to Adam and Eve is simply this. You let me be God. You're human beings. Only I can know what is good and I can know what is evil and perpetually and forever, infinitely be only good. You can't because you're not God. So don't cross me. In other words, don't go counter to what I say and everything will be okay. Well, some people have looked at that story and they've raised the question. And the question is, why did God do that? Why did God have to make that issue like saying to somebody, don't touch, it's wet paint? Why did God do that? Why did he do it? And people say, well, God was testing them. He gave them to get their free will, and he wanted to know if they would use that will to honor and obey him. Yes, that's, I, I get that. But as Josh McNall puts out, and I, and I think this is right, I, I think that tree was put there, listen carefully, for their protection. Not so much their testing. And the question becomes, well, if the tree was put there for their protection, what was it put there to protect them from? It was there to protect them from evil. Evil was present there. The serpent shows up, and I'm not going to spend time going into the meaning of the serpent, but the serpent represents evil. It's used by evil to bring a lie, seduction to the woman and to the man. And remember the serpent says to them, you know, if you take this fruit that God says you can't have, you'll be like God. So he gets them to question God. He gets them to question the truth. Well, the reason God put that tree there and said don't eat the fruit from that tree was to protect them from evil protect them from the serpent here's something interesting god said to adam and eve i am giving you the power to rule over the creatures the other creatures you are to rule over them how are they to rule over them by the truth see what adam and eve should have done is said to the serpent hey listen we're not to take that fruit. It belongs to God. Get out of here. Boy, don't you wish they had said that. And the truth would have protected them and protected us. But the wonderful thing is the truth is still there to protect you and to protect me. The truth is powerful. The truth sets us free. And when I speak the truth, I dismiss evil, even in the midst of evil. So the truth is this wonderful gift that we have. And we should know the truth from Genesis to Revelation. We should know that big story. It is power for you and for me. Listen, even in the hands of an unbeliever, the truth of God is still powerful because it's truth. But in the hands of the believer, it is, it is so dynamic. But what do Adam and Eve do? They ignore what God has to say to them. And God evicts them out of the garden, and they begin this spiraling downward. You know, the people talk about evolution. I believe the Bible teaches de-evolution. The man and woman devolved. They're nothing like how God intended them to be. And listen carefully. I think this is good news, by the way. You are nothing like God has intended you to be, and you're going to be someday. Isn't that good news? So you're like, well, I kind of like myself the way I am. Wow. Can't wait for the new and improved you. All right. I know your spouse can't wait if you're married. Anyway, uh, 
Let, let's move on, all right, before I get in trouble. Here's an important principle I want you to think about with me, all right? The truth is, when we depart from God's goodness, from God's truth, I already said it, we spiral into evil. I know that's true in my life. I'm suspecting you know it's true in your life. And we have history to prove it all around us, don't we? When we depart from God's truth in every area of life, we pay a horrible price for it. We see it all around us. So we go back to our graphic, and right away, you know, Cain kills his brother Abel. Lamech comes along, and he brags about his wives and how he killed a man. And then you have Noah and the ark. Noah's like the last righteous guy on earth. The population was small back then, and things were very evil and very sinful. And so God, in order to preserve the human race, has to wipe out most of the human race and spares Noah and his family. They get on the ark. The flood comes, comes to rest on Mount Ararat. Noah gets off, and I don't know about you, but there's a sense that maybe Noah's the guy. I mean, the first two messed it all up, right? Adam and Eve. But maybe God, you know, maybe Noah is God's, God's man. Maybe God's going to start all over again with Noah. Well, Noah gets off the ark, and he becomes uh, drunk out of his mind. And he's in his tent, he's asleep, and one of his sons comes in, and something really ugly, bad happens. His son does something to him. He wakes up the next morning, and Noah realizes it. And you keep reading the story, and you realize, oh my goodness, we're back. We're back to that downward spiral again. It's just all a bunch of evil, and it culminates in the building of this massive temple, a ziggurat, the Tower of Babel, which like a fist in God's face. We, the human race, are you going to unite, and we're going to unite against you, God? We'll build a tower higher than any flood you can send. And God comes down, remember, and he confuses their language and separates them, and the nations are formed as a result of all of that. And you wonder to yourself, I mean... Is there any hope? And the answer to the question is, yes, there's great hope. Because there's this passage back in Genesis chapter 3 when God speaks to the serpent. In verse 15, God says to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between you evil and the woman, and between your offspring, that is the evil that floods out from you, and hers, he probably a foreshadowing of Jesus, the Messiah, will crush your head and you'll strike his heel. Probably a picture of what? The cross and what takes place there. So God, despite evil rebellion, has his plan to rescue and to save humankind. And that takes us back to our graphic. And let me introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. Abraham and Sarah. God calls them out of Ur of Chaldees. Let me hear you say Ur. It's just awkward, isn't it? Where are you from? Ur. Yeah, where are you from? And he calls them out of idolatry. And he says to Abraham, I know you and your wife are older and unable to have children, but I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm making a covenant with you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless others through you. And the whole world will be blessed because through your lineage, the Messiah is going to come. In essence, is what God is saying to him. And so Abraham and Sarah leave home, and they head to this place that will be known as the promised land. And uh, God says to him, I'm going to give your barren wife a son. And 
I love what it says in Genesis uh, chapter 15, verse uh, 6. It says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. We go back to our graphic again and we're feeling good. Maybe Abraham and Sarah, maybe they are the new Adam and Eve. Maybe hope is going to come through them. And as great as Abraham was, I got to tell you, he wasn't perfect. The fact is that he had a hard time sometimes in crises to tell the truth. He would lie. Remember that story? That story in the Bible when he comes into Egypt and he thinks to himself, my wife is so beautiful. The Egyptians see her. They're going to kill me and take her. Honey, tell them that you're my sister. Let's deceive them. And then that whole thing blows up. Pharaoh finds out he's angry, sends him away, and Abraham actually walks away kind of wealthier as a result. But Abraham was also impatient. Anybody here impatient besides me? I have to confess that a lot in my life. He's impatient. God hasn't provided him a child. So watch this. Sarah says to Abraham, take my handmaid Hagar and have the baby through her. We'll call it ours and move on with life. That sounds so familiar to the first couple, Adam and Eve, where Eve says to Adam, it's okay to eat this fruit. You say, Pastor, I don't like where you're going with that. You're blaming the women for the troubles of the world. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'll just tell you how dumb the men can be. Adam should have said to his wife, because the charge was given to him by God, he should have protected his wife with the truth and said, no, we're going to honor God. Get out of here, serpent. And Adam should have said to Sarah, no, we're going to trust God. I know you're in a vulnerable moment right now, but God's going to come through. Didn't protect her with the truth. Guys, we've got to protect our spouses and our families with the truth. So they have a son, Ishmael, wonderful kid, but it's not God's plan. And we're dealing with the you know, consequences of his disobedience this very day. And then God says, wait on me. And God says, I'll give you a son. And at the right time, God gives them a son, Isaac. What's interesting is Isaac takes after his daddy. He can't always tell the truth either. He has a son, Jacob's grandson, Jacob. Man, that dude can't tell the truth at all. In fact, his name means deceiver. And then he has 12 sons, and of the 12, 10 are scoundrels, are really bad news. Only one's really a good egg, and that's Joseph. And he gets sold by his brothers into slavery. What kind of family is that? The human family. And they're like, here we go again. Well, Joseph gets sold into slavery, but God has a plan. God allows him to go into Egypt because God knows the famine's coming and God's going to take Joseph from being a slave to a prisoner to vice president of Egypt to save the world at that time and particularly to save Abraham's family and the promise that has been made by God. God is saving his promise, so to speak. And so they all eventually end up here in Egypt and, you know, for a while, it's wonderful. They settle into the land of Goshen. The family of 70-plus people multiplies hugely. And one day, a pharaoh shows up who did not remember Joseph, it says. And he goes, look how many Hebrews there are. We're in trouble. If these guys ever gang up with our enemies, we're done for. We're going to make them our slaves. For 400 years, they're slaves. Now, here's another question for you. Why did God allow his people... Why did he allow them to descend into slavery? Well, some scholars say it was to consolidate them as a nation and so that they would understand the need for emancipation and then would look to God and begin to follow God. 
But I think Ezekiel the prophet, as God speaks to him, gives us a better answer why they ended up in slavery. And it's the key to understanding most of the rest of the Old Testament. In the book of Ezekiel, God says, But they, Israel, rebelled against me and would not listen to me. Now he's talking about them while they're in Egypt. While they're in Egypt. They did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on. Idols, Egyptian idols, demonic beings in idol form. Nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. He says, so I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in Egypt. So they've fallen into idolatry, and whatever you idolize, listen carefully, becomes your master. If you idolize sex, sex becomes your master. If you idolize money, money becomes your master. If you idolize a person, they become your master. If you idolize sports, it becomes your master. Education, it becomes your master. Religion, it becomes your master. On and on the list goes. God goes on, he says, but for the sake of my name, because I made a promise... They forsake the promises. I keep mine. I brought them out of Egypt. I did it to keep my name from being profaned in the eyes of the nations among whom they lived and in whose sight I had revealed myself to the Israelites. So in essence, what God is saying is you became enslaved because of your rebellion and your sinfulness. You did not live apart unto me. Which then, as you think about that, takes us then to another important principle. That principle is this. The truth is corrupted when we want to be more like the culture around us than the God who created us. And that's what happened to Israel. That's, That's the Old Testament. It is this constant battle of Israel supposed to be a light in the midst of a dark world, staying true to God for the sake of the world, but always trying to compromise with the world. And that's our battle too, isn't it? Isn't that the battle you and I face? At least I do. To want to be like God rather than be like the culture. And isn't that a lot of what we talked about when we talked about identity? I mean, doesn't identity come from what we believe informs our life the most and the best? And so we seek our identity from the world. We seek it from a tribe within the world, a a form of thinking or action or behavior. We want to belong to someone who will give us our identity. And you end up becoming a slave to that, and it destroys your life. I was created by God. That's where my identity is. That's why when Christopher was here, he said we must be born again. Re-enter our true identity. Idolatry is finding my identity in anything but God. It's choosing an inferior demonic God. In essence, is what it's doing. And so demonism doesn't just exist in the world around us, you know, way over and across the ocean someplace. It's very present here today. It's just that our, our idols are very technical, are very sensual. And so finally Israel cries out when, the sla- when they realize how enslaved they are and they don't like their master anymore. And God responds to their outcry. We go back to our, our uh, um, graphic here. And he sends them this guy named Moses who looks like a king, who acts like a priest and like a prophet. 
and we think to ourselves, Moses must be the guy. He must be the deliverer. And what we find out, and I've run out of time. We'll find out more next weekend. We'll get to Nevi'im. I've never had people applaud for being left on the hang edge. You say, oh, I'm just going to go to thebibleproject.com. I'm not coming back next weekend, and you're going to miss something tremendous next weekend, all right? That you don't get there. So we'll, we'll, we'll finish it up next weekend, all right? But here's my point, okay? My point is you can't appreciate who you are and where you are and what's going on in your life to you understand the arc of the big story, and it becomes serious stuff for us. So I want to share something personal with you. and Give me just a minute or two to do it. Last week I got a message that one of our global partners uh, in India, who's part of our TTI group, um, that uh, he died of food poisoning. And so, you know, we're looking into what's really, is that the story, is there more to the story than that? And by the way, uh, this past year, just so you know, in the five regions of Asia where we're at work, uh, we were able to plant over 1,200 churches. Uh, and when I say we, when I say we, I mean God working through you. And between our TTA partnership and a couple other partners, we saw over 36,000 people, that's conservative, come to faith just last year. So praise God, right? Well, Abirham is one of our key guys in that particular part of, of India. And uh, so, you know, when I hear that he's died and leaves behind a wife and three little girls, I just, I just do the why God thing, right? But, you know, I, I, as I've been thinking about him, I looked up his name. What does his name mean? Actually, it's related to a Hebrew word, Abirham, which means to exalt God. But in Hindi, it means undeterred. And I thought, what a name combined, undeterred to exalt God. You know, the Bible teaches us that if you seek to save your life in this world, you lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life for my sake, you will save it. And, you know, I can, I can understand what happened when I understand the big story. Now what happened, though I don't like it, makes better sense to me. And I'm telling you, it's going to make better sense to you. So don't miss next weekend. We talk about your story as well. Would you stand with me and let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for the big story of your, of your word, the scriptures, and the insight that you give us for living in these days, Lord, of confusion where, where people are running around wondering what the truth is. And it just pains my heart to see believers paranoid because they're, they're questioning the truth. And we see the consequences, the paranoia it creates in us, the fear. Lord, help us not to be arrogant, but help us to humbly be thankful and humbly confident that we know the truth from beginning to end. And we've been revealed, and enough has been revealed to us by you, Lord, to give us the ability to be your light in this dark world, to bring hope to people who don't know you. May our light shine this week as we live out the truth in our lives. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you love prayer, want prayer, please feel free to come forward for our prayer partners.